Welcome back. Yes, it is Stampede. Of course, uh, day one, the parade was this morning. Uh, amongst those in the parade uh, this morning, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party and his wife, on horses no less, doing it right. Of course, there are a lot of uh, politicians descending upon uh, Calgary over the next few days. That includes the Prime Minister, and he's going to be meeting with the Premier coming up uh, later on this afternoon. We'll have more on that. But as mentioned, uh, the leader of His Majesty's loyal opposition, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, MP for Carleton, Pierre Polyev is in town and is on the line with us here this afternoon. Mr. Polyev, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's great to be back in my hometown of Calgary. Absolutely. And like I say, doing it uh, doing it right in the parade, not in a car, not in the back of a truck, riding horseback. That was impressive. How did that go? The old-fashioned way. That's I wasn't right, exactly. thrown off, so that's half the battle. But it was great. Uh, we had a wonderful reception from Calgarians who were lined up in droves along the parade route brought back many memories of my childhood attending that parade with my folks going to the stampede for cotton candy rides and rodeo Uh, so it's always heartwarming to be back home and uh, looking forward to celebrating over the next several days it's going to be a fun few days busy few days Uh, as i noted i mean the prime minister is also in town he's going to be meeting with uh, be meeting with alberta's premier later on this afternoon how closely are you watching that and uh, are you also going to have an opportunity to meet with the premier so on the first, uh, I'll be watching closely to see if Justin Trudeau apologizes to Albertans for filling pipelines, <clears throat> harming our natural gas sector, bringing in a promise-breaking carbon tax that is forcing seniors to choose between heating and eating, uh, and of course, more recently, bringing in a hunting rifle ban that targets Indigenous people unfairly. I think it would be a good occasion to bring the stampede for the Prime Minister to show some contrition and apologize for all that he's done to harm Alberta. I've met with uh, Premier Smith uh, many times myself. She's a long-term friend of mine, and I, I, I congratulate her on her victory, and I want to work with her to axe the carbon tax, uh, get rid of Bill C-69 so we can recharge our energy sector and bring home more of our jobs to this country. I also want to work with her to streamline and speed up recognition of immigrant credentials so that our uh, newcomer nurses and doctors can get licensed and working in our hospitals and uh, reduce the wait times that have grown so much across Canada over the last eight years. So that's what I'll be looking for, mm-hmm. and uh, that'll be my priority. Uh, and I'm talking to Albertans the next several days. No, the Premier said she wants to, to bring up the issue of this ongoing uh, B.C. port strike with the Prime Minister. I know there's a lot of concern about the economic impact this is going to have. How worried are you and are the Conservatives prepared to, to go back if, if the Prime Minister is willing to recall Parliament and bring forward some legislation to deal with this? Well, I'm very worried about it. And look, this port uh, uh, transfers, what, $800 million dollars of merchandise every single day that's like 10 percent of our daily gdp going through that port Uh, the strike has now been on for i think six days Uh, trudeau intervened in the montreal port strike in one day but he doesn't care about western canada and so he hasn't done anything with regards to the port in vancouver my view is the size need to get together and get a fair deal look i understand the workers are suffering after eight years of Trudeau, prices are rising faster than ever. They can't afford to eat, eat, or house themselves. Housing costs have doubled since Trudeau took off. So a lot of these port workers are just desperate and worried that they're going to lose their homes and not be able to feed their families. 
Uh, and that's why I think we have so much labor strife, so many strifes and disagreements that have shut down employers across the country since Trudeau took office. Uh, I would ask the carbon tax to make life more affordable, uh, in, in, uh, incentivize municipalities to streamline building so we can build more affordable homes. Uh, and those will be the ways we'll make life more affordable so that our workers don't need to go on strike uh, to, to fight to keep their heads above water. Something the Prime Minister said this week uh, about you and your party, and I wanted to get some reaction to, and this concerns the whole question of uh, foreign interference and, and the need for a public inquiry and why the Prime Minister hasn't called a public inquiry. Somehow, I guess, he's suggesting this is is your fault. He has the power to call a public inquiry, yet he suggests the Conservatives are, are the problem here. What was your th- reaction to that? Well, first of all, as you point out, he doesn't need my permission or anyone else's to call a public inquiry. He can snap his fingers and call one today. The Inquiries Act gives that power to the prime minister. He's known that Beijing has been interfering in our democracy for at least two elections. They gave the Trudeau Foundation $140,000 to influence him. They interfered in two subsequent elections to help liberals get elected. He's been briefed on that, and it's been public knowledge since November and so we're coming on a year now when he could have called the inquiry himself but didn't. Um, we've told him we're happy to help him. I have names of former judges or intelligence officials who could head up the inquiry. I've written up a, a mandate, and I'm happy to share all of that with them. But we, the last five days, uh, he, we haven't been able to get anyone on the phone over there. That said, today I understand he's finally relenting and he's, he's talking with us, and we think that we're getting closer I'm confident that uh, by the end of this week, uh, we'll have some news on a a full public inquiry. The Canadians need to restore the integrity and the confidence in our democratic system. It feels like we've wasted a lot of time here, right? I mean, it was, what, four months ago that uh, he appointed the special rapporteur, and, you know, that that didn't end well. And we're now waiting for a public inquiry potentially to be called. But, my goodness, I mean, all all this time wasted. This has been a lost opportunity so far, it feels like. It's astonishing. Can you imagine we have foreign dictators running police stations in our country? We have police stations that are controlled by the communist government in China, in our country, intimidating our citizens. Uh, we have uh, now evidence that Beijing has actively interfered to get its supporters elected into parliament, that they flooded the internet with misinformation to help elect liberals. Um, this is a very serious threat to our system. We need to bring home control of our democracy back to Canadians. That's why conservatives want a full public inquiry We want a foreign influence registry that will require anyone paid by a foreign dictatorship to be exposed publicly so everybody knows who they are. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting about Calgary and, and you being in town here. Of course, we've got a by-election coming up in Calgary on July 24th in Calgary Heritage. It seems odd timing for a by-election, and I'm not sure why this wasn't tacked on to the others that, that were last month. Um, Calgary Heritage, a pretty safe conservative seat, but, you know, right now in the midst of, of summer, I mean, it's about making sure, I guess, that people are aware it's going on, getting the vote out. So how does Calgary Heritage and, and the upcoming by-election factor into your Calgary plans here this week? Well, funny you should ask, after I get off the phone with you, I'm going to head south uh, and go do some door knocking with our excellent ca- candidate, Shuvaloy Majumdar. Uh, Shuvaloy Majumdar is a born and raised Calgarian. In fact, we went to the University of Calgary together. 
And uh, Calgary Heritage is right next to where I grew up. I grew up in Shaughnessy, way down south. And uh, so I'll be back in my own my old stomping grounds, talking with friends and neighbors that I've known for 40 years to encourage them to get out and vote for Shuvaloy Majumdar, vote to axe the carbon tax uh, and the inflationary deficits to bring home lower prices, vote to to lower income tax so folks bring home more powerful paychecks, uh, vote to incentivize cities to build more homes so our youth can put roof overhead, vote for tougher laws that put jail, that mean jail and not bail for repeat violent offenders uh, and not going after law-abiding hunters and, and firearms owners. And finally, vote to bring home our freedom by ending the censorship and ensuring that our country is in the hands of our common people. Now, that's what that the folks in Calgary Heritage will be voting on, and I encourage them to vote for Shuvalo Majumdar, common sense conservative. Yeah, you mentioned the, I think you were alluding to C-18, the Online News Act. We're going to be chatting after 2 o'clock with the NDP Heritage critic Peter Julian, and I'm curious why they're supporting the government on this when it seems like this is this just turned into a huge mess. How did C-18 go so wrong for the government here? Well, it's incredible. The bill has done exactly the opposite of what Trudeau claimed. He said it was going to help support the news industry. Well, all it has done is shut the news industry off of the most powerful medium of communication, which is the Internet. Now, all of a sudden, news articles are disappearing from Facebook uh, and Instagram, soon from Google as well. Small enterprises like small independent media are now considering layoffs because they don't believe they can stay in business with this kind of online censorship. And, of course, all of this was passed to favor the uh, big multi-billion dollar corporations that own broadcasters like Bell Canada to centralize control of the media in um, Toronto with the big corporate sector and, and Montreal with, again, corporate players and insiders who support the Liberals. The result is Canadians now don't get their news, can't get their news online. We now have suspicions that C-11, another online bill, is being used to censor uh, videos that are uncomplimentary of the Trudeau government. Is this North Korea? Is this Cuba? Or is this Canada? I mean, where else on earth in a democracy would you have a government bill causing news articles to vanish from the Internet? I'm going to repeal these censorship laws and bring home freedom of expression online. We'll leave it there. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here. Enjoy the rest of uh, your stampede. Excellent. Great to be with you. Happy stampede, everyone. It's great to be home. All the best. There you go. That's Pierre Polyev, a Conservative Party leader, a leader of His Majesty's uh, loyal opposition. So went down for stampede. Uh, as mentioned, uh, some, uh, you know, some door knocking to do. Not often in the midst of uh, Calgary stampede. There's actually some, cam- some campaigning going on. But yeah, there is this uh, by-election July 24th in Calgary Heritage, and it's been kind of sleepy, not surprisingly. I mean, A, I don't know how much drama there is in a race like this. It was a pretty safe conservative seat, but I mean, it's it's July, and it's the only by-election that day. <laughs> like when you had those by-elections last month, at least there were four. So it sort of raises, collectively raises the profile of all of them. So I don't know why they didn't tack this one onto that, so... Uh, yeah, you don't want to take anything for granted. And so opportunity, you're here for Stampede and uh, and do some door knocking there in uh, Calgary Heritage. So anyway, some thoughts there from the conservative leader uh, on a few uh, big issues this week. The port strike, the uh, foreign inquiry issue, C-18, 
Uh, I forget a few. Anyway, uh, we'll take a time out here. We'll come back. Of course, as mentioned, we'll keep an eye on what's happening this afternoon here with the Prime Minister, who's also in town. He's going to be meeting with the Premier coming up after 2 o'clock. As I mentioned, we'll talk about the Online News Act, why the NDP is standing alongside the Liberals uh, on this, what seems to me like a huge mess, and a few other things we'll get to as well. You're listening to Afternoons on QR Calgary. Hey, welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breganridge with you here on this uh, Friday afternoon. Of course, as we kick off the stampede in Calgary, but lots happening right across the province. Lots still to get to in this hour. We'll get back to more of your phone calls and your texts. Uh, my goodness, this has been a week where we've uh, talked a whole lot about Meta, the parent company of uh, Facebook and Instagram, partly because they've launched a new app that is meant to take on, that is meant to, I guess, eliminate Twitter. Uh, so Threads launched this week and is proving to be quite popular. Already over 70 million signed up uh, for Threads. And that includes a lot of Canadians, clearly. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, the other big story involving Meta is uh, that uh, the federal government has decided that uh, it's going to pick a fight, start a fight with Meta. And this all consumed, uh, concerns the Online News Act which Bill C-18, which has passed, which has received royal assent, but has not yet gone into force. Uh, this was the legislation that was going to force Google and Meta to pay, to pay media organizations uh, for links to news on those platforms. And the Heritage Minister, I think, was warned numerous times about the possible outcome here that we now find ourselves in. And when you tell these companies that they have to pay for having news links on their platforms, the obvious option for them is to stop having those news links. And unfortunately, that's where we're at. Now, the Heritage Minister suggests that there still may be a willingness on Google's part to negotiate. But I think part of the problem here is that these companies have no idea what this is going to cost them, no idea what the upper limit of what these payments or contributions might be. So that, I think that's part of the problem here. But Meta has taken the position that, look, news isn't a big part of what we do. So we're just going to stop providing Canadian news. So th they've responded. They've walked away as, as they said they would do if this is what we ended up with. So we have a situation where we're going to lose Canadian news links on, on those platforms. We don't have revenue coming in that was supposed to assist Canadian journalism. We've got the worst of all worlds right now with the Bill C-18. So it feels like this is, is a real mess. But it was interesting to see alongside the Heritage Minister this week were the Heritage critics from the Bloc Québécois and the New Democrats. So why is the Heritage Minister, why is the government getting some political cover here and some support when it appears as though this has gone so badly? Well, joining us uh, for some answers, I guess, on, on those questions and more. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, New Democrat uh, Member of Parliament and Heritage Critic Peter Julian. Good, good to be this back afternoon. with you. Mr. Julian, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so like I say, it feels like we're in a real bad spot here, that, that things have not gone well with C-18. So why is your party, why are you supporting the government here? Well, the, the Meta did the same thing in Australia. When parliamentarians voted democratically to bring in a law, they, they had a, a childish tantrum and they said that they would back off. The reality is that the Meta and Google make billions of dollars out of, out of Canada. And, and so as far as their business model is concerned, the fact that you have the Alberta Community Newspapers Association, the Saskatchewan Community Newspapers Association, and so many other uh, centers of journalism in this country saying that all the money that they've taken out, they should put 
part of it back. And it's a, a few hundred million dollars when they take billions of dollars out. It just makes good sense for the government to hold the line, as uh, the European Union has done, as Australia has done, as California is doing, to, to actually say to these uh, web giants that make billions of dollars uh, and take it out of the community, hey, you've got to put some of it back so that we can really put in place the kind of uh, good journalism that allows the community to find out about what's going on. But they've walked away, Peter, like they're out. So we have the worst of both worlds here. And the government can, you know, talk about how it's standing firm and it can shake its fist at Meta. That doesn't change anything. That doesn't help provide access to to Canadians. That doesn't help media organizations. In fact, Meta has canceled deals with Canadian and, media organizations. And that's exactly what they did in Australia. They canceled deals. They said that they were going to walk away. Uh, they suspended their programs. And then... Uh, what what happened is within the organization they realized the financial hit that they were taking and so they came right back and they negotiated deals for example with country press so all of the rural and uh, and regional industry players the the small community newspapers in australia uh, were able to negotiate an agreement because they stood together the country press uh, and 125 uh, local papers were able to thrive as a result. Uh, in, and the reason why Alberta and Saskatchewan community newspapers have been so strong on the importance of C-18 is because uh, they've seen the undermining, the, the, the vacuuming out of billions of dollars uh, in advertising revenue that have, has left the country uh, to go to Meta headquarters. And, and they're saying, uh, look, some of that needs to come back to support good journalism in communities across Alberta and uh, across Saskatchewan. What's interesting is that, you know, there were proposals put to the government that would have accomplished that. The idea of, you know, a digital tax on these companies, of money going into a fund where you have a situation where there's certainty. These companies know what this is going to cost them. I mean, Australia ended up uh, allowing these voluntary agreements instead. The government's being pretty intransigent on these mandatory agreements. Uh, so the idea of something with some certainty, something that these companies would agree to, we'd be in a much better position with that instead of what we have now. Well, in Australia, as as you know, the, the agreements, they had to make the agreements or they would be subjected to the bill. That's very similar to the C-18 approach. And that's why community newspapers across the country. And, and I, I stress Alberta and Saskatchewan because the, the party that has been opposing all of this is uh, the Conservative Party. And of course... Um, most of the Conservative Party MPs come from Alberta and Saskatchewan, and yet their community newspapers are saying this is absolutely vital to hire the new journalists uh, that are so important uh, for us to tell stories about the community. Uh, the, the NDP succeeded uh, in getting more amendments in C18 than all other parties together because we wanted to put the focus on local communities, whether that's Grand Prairie or Lethbridge uh, or Prince Albert, it's important that local communities have the wherewithal to actually hear about what, what, what things are happening in their community. And I've seen firsthand what the impacts of Meta and Google have been. We've had two newspaper closures in the communities I represent in New Westminster and Burnaby because the ad revenue was all going south, all going to Meta headquarters. So the fact that they give some of that money back, um, that, that is just a good sense. It's a good common sense approach. The European community is doing this. Australia is doing this. California is doing this. And what Meta really is trying to do 
is is basically shake down Canada because they're concerned about the fact that it it's worked in Australia and that other countries are now looking at the same model. And so that this is a political thing. It's not a financial thing. Uh, ultimately, Meta is the it, it hurts its own bottom line by playing this kind of, of childish temper tantrum. Uh, the reality is, if they uh, negotiate uh, through the regulatory process. They'll know exactly how much that they have to provide. It's a fraction of what they take out of Canada. And that's why I think so many community journalists across the country are calling for C-18. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's being reported in California today that that legislation uh, is going to advance no further this year. So California might be having some second thoughts, and I wonder if that's in part due to what's happening here. But I want to read this to you. This is uh, a quote today in the Canadian press from Bob Cox, who's chair of the Canadian Newspaper Association. He's editor, and, uh, former editor and publisher of the Winnipeg Free Press. It says, quote, everybody's in a bit of a panic. They have so much stock in this legislation. Now it seems to be backfiring. He also says not everyone realizes that Google and Facebook already have been paying significant amounts of money to Canadian organizations via licensing deals and agreements. The notes that money could be lost in this current dispute and may not result in any new support for Canadian journalism. And Peter, I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like this should be about results. And, you know, we can say what we want about Meta. They're being irrational or selfish or greedy or mean. None of that matters. The end result is what matters. And... The concern the that, that we've Australia, got nothing to show for this year. In the end result in Australia is they back down because their bottom line is impacted, which is why we've seen a whole host of other organizations and media organizations actually stepping up and saying as well, they're not going to advertise on Meta. And that that kind of, of thing has an impact on their bottom line. We've, we've seen numerous media organizations, uh, local journalists, all saying the same thing. We've had a number of political actors as well that have been very supportive. And the ultimately, the, the issue of, of what a democratic decision means when, when you have two-thirds of the members of parliament in the House of Commons making a decision uh, that is a decision that, that we heard from dozens of, uh, of witnesses from across the country on, and the vast majority of them were supportive of C-18, uh, that, that Meta has a responsibility to respect those democratic decisions as well. And yes, they're, they're, they've got tons of money, so they're throwing lobbyists out left, right, and center. They're lobbying the European Union, and they're lobbying California. They're trying to lobby in Canada. The reality is, uh, ultimately, an organization that takes so much money out of Canada, pays very little in taxes, uh, does very little to benefit Canadian society, uh, should be required, have that obligation to give some of that back to provide some social benefit to Canada. And that's ultimately the battle here. It's whether or not uh, big corporations, uh, as powerful as they are, actually have to participate in democratic life. And I, I, I noticed that, that Meta has done nothing to combat online harms. They've done nothing to combat the toxic level of hate that comes out of their, their social media platforms. They say that they, they just don't have the technical ability to combat hate, but they have the technical ability to skirt around C-18. They have the technical ability to target uh, certain types of information. I, I, I don't buy Meta's arguments, and I note that in the past they have backed down when they have been uh, confronted by uh, a democratic uh, entity like Australia where the parliamentarians say, Hey, you, you've got you've got to give back a little bit to the society you took out of, and that's exactly the message that Canadian parliamentarians are giving to Meta today. 
So you were there as mentioned, or I guess there virtually, when, when Pablo Rodriguez spoke the other day and announced that the federal government was suspending its advertising on these platforms. I don't know that this came up on Wednesday, but it, it just seems so bizarrely ironic that this government has been spending tens of millions of dollars advertising on these platforms and at the same time arguing that all of the money that these platforms earn in advertising in Canada is bad for democracy. How much further ahead would journalism in Canada be if the government had diverted that ad spending to local and independent media outlets? Why why hasn't the government been called out on, on that hypocrisy? Well, the NDP, of course, has been calling it uh, the government out for for months on that. We we believe that when Meta first said, "Well, we're not going to respect uh, the law, we're going to try to skirt around it, uh, we're going to try to push it back," uh, that uh, the federal government had that obligation to suspend uh, the millions of dollars that they spent on advertising on, on Meta platforms. And and I, I certainly support the decision they made this week, as well as as other organizations and other governments to suspend advertising on Meta. I think that is is the kind of uh, cold shower that re- allows Meta to to back off on the posturing and and raise the questions at the regulatory process. That that's fine. That's certainly what Google Google is doing, uh, but not play these games where they say that they can override a, a democratic parliamentary vote. And and in Australia. And in the European Union, they have had to back down. In California, they're lobbying uh, full, full, full length, and uh, and and I, I have no doubt they're doing the same thing in Canada. But ultimately, does a big corporation have the right to do whatever it wants, or does a big corporation have to be subject to Canadian law? And well, does okay. a big corporation uh, have to I'm respond to Canadian imperatives? Look, it's it's almost like saying if you keep speeding, we're going to charge you for speeding. One option is to not speed. So instead of imposing a digital tax or something along those lines that they would have been obligated to follow, the government gave them an out. We said here that we're going to charge you uh, or you're going to have to pay for having these links to news on your platforms. And they've simply said, OK, we won't have them. How, how is that skirting the law? They They say that they don't have the technical ability to to crack down on the toxic level of hate. But they're saying that they can get around the law by by exempting some of the links. Uh, I don't buy it. Uh, certainly Meta's story up until now has been that they don't have the technical ability to do what they've announced. So I, I take what Meta says, uh, given the, their, their history of saying one thing and doing another. Um, I, I take uh, what they say with a grain of salt, and, and that's important. This is a company that pays very little in income tax in Canada, pays very well, I mean, little to contribute to the that. Canadian the government's economy. Not, the government's not doing anything to address that, are they? Well, the, the NDP certainly believes that the corporations should be paying their fair share of taxes. And that's a debate we can have uh, another day of uh, the, the tens of billions of dollars in money that should be paid in corporate taxes that go to offshore tax havens. But the reality is, in, in terms of C-18, it was backed up by, by witnesses that we heard from across the country, the vast majority of witnesses, where the NDP approved the bill. So it, it really does strike to what the Alberta and Saskatchewan community newspapers were calling for. They were looking for a low threshold to enter into to those kinds of agreements and receive the support that, that needs to come from Meta. Uh, the the requirements that Meta had, had mentioned in the past that they needed to have met have largely been met by the legislative process. And now they're saying, well, we're still going to back out. We're still going to try to to threaten uh, the. 
Canadian market. And ultimately, I, I think we, we will see them backing down as they did in Alberta, backing down as they have in the European Union, though uh, there are still other pieces of legislation that they're still fighting. I, I think we will see ultimately that Canadian democracy um, will prevail. Well, yeah, I guess we will see. I mean, it uh, it feels to me like this is already a, a, a disaster, but as you said, maybe there's still an opportunity to salvage something. I, I guess we'll see what the weeks and months ahead bring, but we'll leave it there from now. I do appreciate making some time for us. Good, good to get some perspective on this, Peter Julian. Thanks again for joining us here. Absolutely. Always good to be with you. Thanks All so much. Take care. Okay, there you go. There's Peter Julian, a New Democrat Heritage Critic, Member of Parliament. Um, so, look, again, I, I think this is a huge mess. But there's the reason why the New Democrats believe the government's on the right track on this one. Let's start with an issue here this afternoon, though, that's been dominating the conversation in in recent months right across the country. The issue of housing affordability. And, you know, we're, we're not immune from it for sure. Interestingly, though, here in Alberta, Calgary and Edmonton uh, seem to be in, in much better shape affordability-wise than what we're seeing in some other Canadian cities. I mean, you got Vancouver and Toronto where things are really off the charts. So what's contributing to that and how do we address it? In Canada's big cities, there's been a real focus on density. You know, the idea that we need to grow within a confined space, uh, grow upwards or try to fill in the, the space in between. The idea of expanding the geographical footprint of our cities uh, is typically frowned upon. Urban sprawl, as it's referred to, and the concern that it just leaves more of an environmental footprint. Uh, you know, you're clearing out forest areas or, or otherwise green space to build more housing. People have to drive further uh, to get where they're going. It's seen as having too much environmental downside. Now, to be sure, I mean, Calgary's uh, geographical footprint has certainly grown over the decades. But the idea of growing it even further and doing so in other cities, that's a controversial issue. But given how important it is that we're able to add more housing stock, especially with Canada having some pretty ambitious immigration targets in the years ahead, this is an issue we got to figure out. There's a fascinating op-ed this week in the National Post on this issue and how, if done right, urban sprawl, which has typically been opposed by environmentalists, can actually be the environmentally friendly solution uh, to the housing affordability crisis. Joining us on the line this afternoon uh, is the author of that piece. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Joel Konkin. He is uh, author of the book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute. Joel, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. How do you define urban sprawl, first of all? Why, Why do you think it's got such a bad rap? Well, I think, you know, some of it um, is clearly understandable. Um, the, the idea of urban sprawl is, well, you know, people uh, moved further out from the core, uh, um, seeking more space, in some cases closer uh, tied to nature, some cases, um, you know, in, in, in the historic past, you know, certainly, you know, trying to get away from other people, you know, and sometimes people that who they didn't feel uh, very comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, and then you had this enormous growth of population um, in the um, in the 50s and 60s, and a lot of development that, although actually uh, people liked it and actually in many ways benefited from it, 
um, it, it wasn't particularly enlightened from a planning point of view. It, um, a lot of times you even see sore small town downtowns, you know, wiped out to put in shopping malls. Um, so it was certainly a mixed bag. But but the the idea that we would now have sprawl like what we had in the 50s and 60s is just not what you see when you look at new communities that are being built. And and you also just don't have the population growth to drive it. Um, the the other thing is is that you know whatever the problems with in quote sprawl, um, the uh, the advantages for people are rather strong. And in almost every country, um, and including Canada, the U.S., Australia, with three that I've studied closely, the vast preference of people is for some form of detached home um, and somewhat uh, lower densities. Uh, there's always been a market for density mm-hmm. in the United States. It's been about 10 to 15 percent of the population, and it continues to have that appeal. But the vast majority um, really are looking for maybe a better life within the sprawl. So it's not really realistic to, to basically, say, give up on that dream, is it? Like that, to just well, tell people that that's not going to be an option anymore. Well, the, there are several implications. A, you're going to have, um, you know, when 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 you have, you're going to have this the issue I think, which is fairly severe, that if people can't buy homes, um, they will have no significant assets, and therefore they will become ever more dependent on the state in their retirement. Um, how many retired people do you know who's comfortable retirement came from selling their home in large part. Right. Um, so that's certainly a, a factor. And the other factor, probably more long-term, is that people who live in small apartments tend to have fewer children. Um, and in a country like Canada, which has always had an issue with population growth, has always had a problem with not being able to um, have a sufficient workforce um if, if your birth rate goes really low, um, that's not going to help. And then the third issue, which I think is very important, is is that Canada, even more than the U.S. and maybe even more than Australia, is very, very dependent on immigrants and immigrant labor and immigrant um, uh, entrepreneurship. And immigrants, generally speaking, are people who have families. Generally speaking, they want to move into the suburbs. I'm, in the United States, in the last decade, 96% of all the growth in suburbia was of people of color. So if you're going to tell people, hey, you know what, yeah, you can come to Canada, but the best you can hope for is a you know, overpriced one-bedroom apartment, um, I think that's going to be a lot less attractive to people than the idea that, well, if you work hard, you save your money, you might you buy a house, you, you start a family, and... and uh, you know, that's the Canadian dream, that's the uh, Australian dream, and that's the American dream. Yeah, Canada especially. I mean, the United States, Australia, these are all countries that have a lot of land space. I mean, even you know, yeah. the province we are here in Alberta is bigger than a lot of other countries, and we're only about you know just over 4 million people in Alberta. We, we've got a lot of room here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things is a lot of the the ideas that you hear is they say, well, there's no space. Well, A, there's lots of space. There's also, by the way, generally does not go into wooded areas. The expansion usually goes into agricultural areas. Um, 
and very often very marginal um, agricultural areas. Um, and as agricultural productivity has increased, um, the the amount of land that can be uh, safely developed is actually quite uh, significant. And so, you know, Canada is is a very big country now. The form that that um, its popul- population dispersal um, may take um, shape may be a little different. You know, we, I mean, one of the things that I think we're going to see in the future is more and more people working remotely, more and more people working from uh, uh, from home, you know, two three days a week, maybe more, um, and more and more companies uh, um, having. Um, their their headquarters in um, in suburban and exurban locations. So you know the the assumptions that many planners have are well we're going to continue to have the transactional city with high rise towers um, and everything built around that. And that's that's exactly the opposite way things have been going for 20 years and are now going even more rapidly um, towards this more dispersionary model. So what we have to do is sort of think about how do we create communities that make sense in the current reality, not something that might have made sense 50 years ago? Right. You talk about in your piece, you know, the the idea of these urban growth boundaries that are maybe arbitrary to some extent in a lot of cases. I, I mean, there are some cities that just realistically can't expand. I mean, New York City is, isn't really going to be able to expand its footprint, and that's probably true for some big cities. But in other cases, there is a lot of room to grow, and yet it seems as though development's stuck along these, these boundaries. Well, and, and of course, there's some enormous opportunities, both for for lower and higher density in, in the um, in the creative destruction, if you will, of shopping malls and office buildings, um, in some cases of, of outdated industrial facilities. Um, there are many ways that we could take a look at our, our urban environment and say, how, where can we put more, ha- more housing um, in areas where you don't have to go into suburban neighborhoods and, and and forcibly identify them. And I've been in wonderful neighborhoods in Sydney that 20 years ago uh, were just gorgeous single-family neighborhoods that you could walk into the city easily, now filled with apartment buildings and bad traffic. And, um, you know, why do we feel that we have to uh, disturb existing, stable, working, and middle-class neighborhoods when we have so many places to build, not just on the periphery, but also in the in this vast um, uh, amount of redundant office and and, uh, um, and and commercial space. What about the environmental side? Right, the concern with with more sprawl is it makes us more car dependent. We have to build more right. roads to facilitate all of that. People have to you know have they have longer commutes, et cetera. How do we address that? Well, first of all, the way we address it is, in part, is people work at home so they don't commute as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's going to be a big change. Every study I'm seeing is most companies are accepting at least two to three days of, of work from home. That obviously are two to three days you don't you don't drive to work. Second of all, we're making enormous progress with cars themselves. We can't judge cars today the way we might have judged them, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, I, you know, I lived most of my life in, in the Los Angeles area, and when I moved here, the smog was terrible. 
we we still drive cars at more than we actually we did before uh relative uh trend all the investment transit hasn't really uh, uh had any impact on that but but the air is cleaner because of technological changes so you know if if everybody had a hybrid car or an electric car or or a low emissions car you know like a a Honda Civic, we would solve much of that problem. Although I agree that we should have much stronger standards on 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 uh, mile on mileage, and there's lots that we can do. The key thing is, if you want to get environmental change, you you need to to present it in a way that doesn't tell people, well, okay, my generation screwed up the world. Now you're going to have to live like crap for the rest of your life mm-hmm. to make up for it. I don't think that is the best political uh, solution that you can have. You have to figure out how do we adapt to the to the uh, vicissitudes of, of the climate um, issue, and you know, there's lots of different ways of looking at it, um, in a way that doesn't destroy and undermine our society and, and, and doesn't make people uh, feel that, well, my choice is to, to, to live the way I want to live, or follow a climate regime, which basically means I, I'll never own a house. I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I may not have a job. I might be, um, you know, I'm going to be stuck in a, in, a, in a neighborhood that maybe I don't want to be in. And, of course, I'm not going to have children because people who live in crowded, congested areas, particularly those who are somewhat educated, are not going to have children. It's just, just the evidence everywhere. If you take a look at the densest places um, in the high-income world, you know, places like Seoul, Korea, Tokyo, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Manhattan, the birth rates are unbelievably low. Some cases, as, as much as half or even more than half replacement rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Is that what you're going to want to have? Are you going to want to have a society like what's happening in Japan where by 2050, there'll be more people over 80 than under 15. I don't know. That's not the world I want my children to have. I mean, I won't be around to see it, but but they will. Yeah. Some really important points in uh, all of this. We'll leave it there for now. Much more, as I mentioned, the piece that's up at nationalpost.com. Uh, much more at uh, joelkotkin.com, uh, K-O-T-K-I-N, and uh, urbanreforminstitute.org. Joel, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Uh, That's Joel Konkin. He's, uh, as mentioned, executive director at the Urban Reform Institute, presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, and author of the book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. So some really interesting points about, you know, some of these housing challenges we're facing and and being realistic about the kinds of policies that we're going to need. And they're going to get buy-in from people who are going to be affected by it. So right now, as it stands, right, we got a young, a lot of young families who are realizing that the opportunities their parents had are not really there for them. We've got a lot of uh, immigrants coming to this country who are pursuing the Canadian dream, who want to, to put down roots and, and start their own families or have somewhere for their families to live. And, and home ownership is becoming such a big challenge. Look, there's going to be demand for, for condos. There's going to be demand for densification, and we need to, to do that. But I think we also need to look at this side of it, too. And, yeah, we call it urban sprawl, and that's become, uh, you know, it certainly has a negative connotation to it. But I think, as Joel says, if done right, it's really something we need to embrace. And we got a hell of a lot of room. 
You know, it's interesting when you compare Alberta's space. I mean, Alberta's uh, larger than France. Alberta's larger than the United Kingdom, larger than Spain. You think about all these countries that have several cities of well over a million people or a city, you know, as big as, as London or Paris. Like, we can fit a lot of people here. You know, we pretend like, well, we're running out of room here. <laughs> no, we're not. Not even close. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on this Friday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll get to some of your phone calls in a bit here. Got a few other things to get to as well. Uh, some interesting new research of this week from the think tank Cardis, uh, looking at uh, levels of religiosity in Canada and the role that immigration is going to play in affecting those trends. Uh, Canada has some pretty ambitious immigration targets. By 2025, you know, the anticipation of about one and a half million new immigrants having arrived in this country and the expectation that those numbers will continue to grow over the years. Now, there's economic reasons for that, right? I mean, to, you know, to sustain our levels of productivity, to have a taxpayer base, to sustain an aging population and, and all of that. And then, yes, you know, there are questions that come up, obviously, about integration and how comfortable newcomers feel in Canada and, you know, the... Um, pluralism of our society. But yes, on the question of religi religiosity and levels of religious belief, uh, religious belief has been declining in Canada. I mean, in, in a broad sense, we're a secular country and that we don't really have an official state religion, but uh, secular is meaning non-religious. We, we've certainly become more secular in that sense. So what's the impact then of bringing in large numbers of, of immigrants who tend to be, uh, on the whole, more religious than those who are already here. And what's the implication or the impact of all of that? So that's what this uh, new study uh, examines. Are those trends and the implications called religion and belief among immigrants to Canada? Read more at cardus.ca, C-A-R-D-U-S. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this, uh, these findings and this research. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Reverend Dr. Andrew Bennett, who's Faith Communities Program Director with Cardus. Uh, Dr. Bennett, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. It's great to be with you. Uh, so talk a bit about why this, this matters, why it's important to, to study this and understand these, these different factors and you know, the, these levels of religious belief. Well, Rob, as you said in your introduction, uh, Canada is broadly uh, a secular country. And when we say secular, I think that becomes shorthand for largely not actively religious. Um, so Cardus has been doing work really since 2017, uh, a series of surveys with the Angus Reid Institute out in Vancouver to look at what is Canadians' engagement with religious faith. And the classic way people used to determine that was, well, how often do you go to church or how often do you go to a religious service? And that's one metric, but it doesn't really get at the depth of a person's religiosity. So we came up with six questions that we asked people, and we've done this in a number of surveys over the last uh, seven years or so, five years, I should say, and um, trying to get a sense of, of where Canadians are at. So, for example, um, roughly 14% of Canadians are religiously committed. So when you ask them these, these six questions about their religious behavior, they kind of say yes to all six, or maybe five of six. Mm -hmm. um, and then those that are non-religious, those who would not do any of those things, or maybe one of those things, they're roughly 15%. So it's roughly 
the non-committed uh, and the committed are roughly equal in the country. But when you look at people that are born outside of Canada, the number is significantly different. So those born outside of Canada, 28% are religiously committed, so double the number of Canadian-born. Um, likewise, uh, the religiously committed um, and people from outside the country are much more likely to say that they believe in God or a higher power, uh, roughly by a factor of about 15% compared to Canadian-born citizens. Um, and that goes across the whole range, including a question where we ask, is it important for parents to teach their children religious beliefs? And 27% of people born in another country strongly agree that that's important, whereas only 18% of those born in Canada. So across a whole series of metrics, we're seeing that people born outside the country who have immigrated to Canada are more deeply religious. Yeah, and, and this isn't about any particular faith because, you know, we're talking about different religions, monotheistic, polytheistic. So we're talking about a, a numerous different religious beliefs. This is sort of on the question of, you know, religious or, or not religious then. That's correct. And the thing to note, though, Rob, is that when we look at the, the 500,000 new immigrants coming into the country over the next three years, most of these people are coming from countries that are not as secular as Canada. They're coming from countries where religion deeply matters, not only in the private sphere, in a person's private life, but also publicly. And religion plays, uh, in many of these countries, a very significant role in that country's public life. So those people who are coming to this country as immigrants are going to bring that understanding with them. And another interesting factor we find in this study is that people born outside the country are much more likely to live out their faith publicly and to see that they should be able to exercise their religious beliefs and advance them in the public life that they live. Now, some people might be a little concerned by that, but I think if we really want to champion diversity in this country, a really robust pluralism, we have to be willing to accept beliefs that maybe we might disagree with. Um, and as long as those are held peacefully and, and uh, in, good, in good faith, I think it's good for the country to have lots of diversity in our public debates, including lots of religious diversity. Yeah, and I think that's what this provides, you know, because we see where there, there might be disagreements or tensions between religious and non-religious or believers and non-believers. But there's a different dimension, too, when it comes to differences or disagreements between followers of different faiths. So there's almost a, another dimension there, not just between believers and non-believers, but even within different religions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, I'm uh, a member of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Uh, I'm a deacon in that church. And so as a Christian, I believe certain things about who God is. Those beliefs are going to be profoundly different from uh, my fellow citizens who are Muslim or Hindu. And I'm going to have some very, yeah, very different beliefs than them. But if we're going to have, again, as I say, that robust pluralism where we're encountering one another in public spaces, in our schools, as neighbors, as colleagues, okay, it's good to have those different beliefs, that's fine, that's honest, but we always have to remember that when I see someone in front of me who believes something profoundly different than me religiously, or even philosophically or morally, I have to still be able to recognize another person and recognize their dignity as a human being. And I think if we can do that, then uh, that'll allow you know, diversity to flourish in the country but things start to go downhill when we start to denigrate other people's beliefs 
or to dehumanize people because they don't have they don't hold certain beliefs that are deemed acceptable uh, in our society and we have to stop doing that we have to really i think recognize the human dignity that each person brings um, and really seek to have healthy robust public debate yeah, I think that's an important point because that's, you know, pluralism matters and it is valuable and this diversity is a net benefit. But especially when it comes to, you know, faith and religious belief, you know, these things are near and dear to people. And right. so it's it's important to to respect that freedom of belief and recognize that people are free and do believe different things. But, uh, yeah, when it comes to beliefs being challenged, it, it it can get it can get emotional, right? There's there's a lot of personal investments in these matters. That's right, and we have to remember that as human beings, we're sort of hardwired in a certain way. We're hardwired uh, to seek meaning, to seek truth, to understand, you know, who am I? Who am I in relationship to others? Who am I in relationship to the world in which I live? And um, some people are going to find meaning in secular philosophies. Some people are going to find truth and meaning in different religious traditions. But at the core, all of us as human beings want to have the freedom to seek truth, to seek meaning, and to govern our lives according to that. And, you know, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be difference of opinion. But we, we have to be able to create the space in our society for people to, to differ. And there's nothing wrong with difference, as long as it's held, again, you know, peacefully and, and in good faith, and out of a desire to contribute to the common good. And right now, I think we're having a lot of hard debates about just what exactly is that common good. Um, and if we want to make sure that that debate is, again, as I said, very robust, we need to ensure that people, especially new immigrants who are coming to this country, are able to voice their views and their beliefs and maybe how they value um, what, what society, um, and what is it that society should value and how, how do you advance those, uh, those beliefs. Um, so I think that's really important. And uh, I hope that this study that we've done at Curtis um, demonstrates you know, some shifts that are taking place uh, in the country. And it'll be really interesting to see how the overall fabric of the country, the religious fabric of the country, begins to change. Yeah, because I imagine this will start to show up. I mean, generally, there's been an overall decline in this country in belief in God or, or overall religiosity. I wonder then, with Canada bringing in large numbers of immigrants in the years ahead, uh, you know, once this country starts to grow then, and, and we've got an influx uh, of, of people who maybe are more likely to believe in God or a higher power, if that starts to change those overall national numbers. And that that would be interesting to watch, absolutely. I think one thing, too, that maybe a lot of people might be surprised by is in some of our research uh, with these numbers, you know, exploring how Canadians engage with religion, uh, we put out a, another report uh, in the middle of last year called The Shifting Landscape of Faith in Canada. And when we looked at how religious people were, again, based on these six metrics or indicators that we developed, um, we found that when you broke it down into age group, um, that in the 18 to 34 age group, that age group is holding fast to religious commitments. And if you compare how the percentage of people in that age group who are religiously committed, who are doing five or six of those things, or they're saying yes to five or six of these questions that we ask them, it's within the margin of error, but it's slightly more religious than my age group, which is you know the 35 to 54 age group. So that and these are, you know, a mixture of people born in Canada, people, you know, not born in Canada. We're not disaggregating that particular data. But to see that even younger people are retaining a degree of religiosity, that maybe goes against what some of the commonly held narratives are in the country. 
Um, so that's another interesting thing to watch is uh, religiosity amongst youth in the country and why are they so religious? Uh, what is it that is drawing them to you know, lives of religious faith? Uh, that, that, I think, is another really fascinating thing that we should be watching. Well, much more on all of this is mentioned. Cardus.ca, C-A-R-D-U-S. Uh, Dr. Bennett, really appreciate the conversation here this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Andrew Bennett, uh, Faith Communities Program Director with Cardus, uh, Reverend Dr. Andrew Bennett. Uh, so interesting to see the, some of those trends, some of those differences between, you know, those who, who live in Canada, those who are newcomers to Canada. And so you do see higher levels of religious belief amongst immigrants. And sure, that, that's going to involve different religions. But this was just sort of looking straight up at religious yes or no, belief in God, yes or no. But in any country that values freedom of religion, you know, as Dr. Bennett said, the idea of pursuing truth, the idea that you can find God, reject God, you can convert from one religion to another, you can reject it all. And in that process, you can ask questions. You know, is this true? Why do I believe this? And reject certain beliefs. And, and yes, reject certain religions or reject all religions. You're free to do that. It can get delicate. And, and, you know, we used to have in this country blasphemy laws that I think hindered that pursuit of truth. And that, that still exists in other countries. Uh, so as much as we can disagree on all of this, to believe in no God, to believe in one God, to believe in multiple gods, but to all coexist as Canadians and, and respect and cherish that diversity. You know, it's all good in theory and on paper, sometimes in practice, that, that can be a challenge. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.